All right, all right, all right. Welcome in everyone to another episode of the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. We are jammed. I mean, honestly, I'm jammed. <laughs> There's a lot going on. We got wildfires in Hawaii. So listen, shout out to the Aloha State. One of the things I didn't know this. Did you all know this? Hawaii became a state in 1959. I am one. Listen, I am one of those people. If you had a chance to listen to the previous episode of the Nonprofit Insider, I talked about the Segurite Nonprofit Land Trust and how a lot of aspects of being in America, you may not know the plight of many uh, indigenous groups across Northern America. We know how that can be. It's written out of a lot of history books, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. But the same can be said, honestly, about a lot of aspects of American imperialism, including Hawaii. And I didn't know. I, I'm like, I was like, I don't know why I thought Hawaii became a state prior to World War II. Learning, reading more about Hawaii over these last three, four years living out west. Just, just an interesting history. If you get a chance to learn and you know, get a little insights into the history of Hawaii. So we got wildfires in there we've just got a lot of things going on back to school time um for me personally football i like football a lot of people don't like football i like football i like the nfl i like the sports uh so just busy and it's hot still (sighs) it's just hot so listen if you haven't had a chance be sure to go to instagram follow us on instagram the nonprofit insider i've started sending out postcards hashtag nonprofit horror story. If you received a postcard, follow us on Instagram. Let us know. Take a picture of the postcard. I just had a homegirl. Shout out to you, Leah. She sent me a, a copy of, uh, she sent me a picture because I sent her a postcard. You never know. You might get a postcard in the mail soon to you. Look, Jam Pack, we've got a lot going on. I've got an amazing nonprofit horror story. The longest one I've received from a friend out in North Carolina. So we're going to give Lacey a little bit of love here in about 15, 20 minutes. Even though we're jammed, it's still going to be a shorter episode. I'm not going to talk quite as much as I normally do. It's just, again, a lot going on. I'm going on a boat tomorrow in northern New Mexico. I got a my girl's friends haven't rented a boat, so we're going out on the lake. I asked her if they bought Life Fest, because listen, even though my name is Swim, I'm not trying to get crazy. I like a good Life Fest. Um, i got a good news story coming up here in a minute, so stay tuned for that. And a good topic um, coming up here in about 5-10 minutes. So, alright, let's not waste any more time. Follow us on Instagram. Let's get to the show. If you've been listening to the show for some time now, you know I love going to the Associated Press. They have a really good uh, aspect of philanthropy where they talk about just specifically philanthropy and nonprofits. So they talk about sports, science, uh, climate, health change, celebrity, entertainment, politics. But one of their big aspects is talking about philanthropy, nonprofit, NGOs. And so I'm going to put a link to this story because this is a really good one where they, this is the title here. Nonprofits are lobbying a lot less than two decades ago, according to new research. And they've actually, they got this article at the very bottom of the page. It says that's a very good article. This article was provided to the Associated Press by the Chronicle of Philanthropy. 
I'm trying to reach out to them. If anyone knows anyone there, let me know because I'd like to get them on as a sponsor because they have a paywall, but they have a lot of good articles and I had it for a while. But if I can get them as a sponsor, maybe they'll give me uh, access to the website and a little bit of cash. The article was written by Alex Daniels. And one of the things the article talks about is basically just that, how compared to 20 years ago, 25 years ago, nonprofits are not doing nearly as much lobbying as they did in the past. And I listen, I, the article does an amazing job. Alex really breaks down how a lot of nonprofits feel they may not have the money to do that. A lot of nonprofits may feel that they're going to get in trouble with the IRS. It's like walking through landmines, for lack of a better nonviolent related uh, analogy or metaphor. But they can kind of feel like they're walking through man minds. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to lose their status. They don't have a lot of time. Blah, 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 X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. I think another big portion, and I'm going to read some of this episode here a little bit, or some of this article in a little bit. I think another big portion is a lot of nonprofits now have access to this thing called the internet. And one of the things, the internet, it gives you a lot of information. And sometimes it could be like drinking from a water hose. You've heard that before. And so I think a lot of nonprofits will go into a aspect of, I don't need to lobby because I'm spending my time on other aspects of my nonprofit, such as lawyers. That's a big one. Such as social media. That's a big one. And then, of course, working for clients. That's the biggest aspect. Working in your after-school program, working with your local community, whatever the case may be. And I haven't figured it out. I, I don't have it you know, squared away to a T, but I think the internet plays a role in how much lobbying you can do because where before maybe you were lobbying just to a politician, a governor, um, a, a local municipality group, now you're almost kind of lobbying to society. You're making sure that the things you do and the things you don't do aren't taken a certain way. And the author, Alex, does a really good job of explaining how a lot of nonprofits don't want to get into the lobby game because they can feel like, eh, well, how's society going to view this? When you look, when they look at my 990 and they see that I spent $15,000 on lobby, and how's that going to be perceived? Now, nonprofits can't lobby for a candidate. They can't endorse candidates. It's not that type of ordeal. So there is some space between nonprofits and the way they can lobby. But there's still a perception. Like, listen, I'll be honest. If I look at a 990 and I see that a lot of money is being spent during lobbying, I have questions about it. Not in a bad way. Not in a way of, gosh, they're lobbying. It's not like that. But it does make you kind of go like, well, where's the money going, right? And when you start talking lobbying and politics, we know how that can be. Another thing with lobbying that I think gets a little bit overlooked, and I'm going to link this in the article in the, in the um, notes, so check it out. Why should I lobby? So much of, of history has been, I'm going to lobby to the government because I can get a financial reward. I can move policies in the way. And you can still do all those things. But many nonprofits nowadays, and you'll hear this in our story a little bit later today, are going, if I could spend my energy, even if it's just 50, if, if even if 10% of my nonprofit's energy is spent on lobbying, 
Or I could take that energy and spend it on trying to get a mega donor. What are you going to do? So many nonprofits are bootstrapped. They're looking for money. And even the medium-sized ones are like, we still want money. And so if I can spend my time and get a slightly more guaranteed reward of going to Mark Zuckerberg, going to the Arnold Foundation, going to, I'm trying to think of some other ones, going to the, um, the, the Dallas junior league and I, and if i have a slightly better even even just a slightly better chance of getting a financial donation from them with my energy versus lobbying which can be it's like going through the mud it can take forever it can be kind of messy it can be a, almost a little too formal too traditional. It can be cloaked in a lot of aspects of American politics that nonprofits just don't want to be a part of. No, forget that. I'm actually just going to go over here. I'm going to see if I can get some money from the local dealership, and I'm going to spend more of my energy on that way. So I think that's another aspect of lobbying. The article is good, and I want to read the first two paragraphs here. The author says, quote, and I quote, a generation ago, nonprofit organizations regularly lobbied for legislation and served as advocates on issues. But according to a recent survey, charities are now far more reluctant to seek influence to seek to influence lawmakers and other policymakers. The survey conducted for Independent Sector, a membership organization of nonprofits and grant makers, found that less than one third of nonprofits have actively advocated for policy issues or lobbied on specific legislation over the past five years, down from nearly three quarters of nonprofits in 2000. Well, what things have changed since then? More billionaires, more millionaires in the internet. Check it out. It's a good one. I personally don't mind nonprofits lobbying. It can be a tricky, slippery slope. It's a fact. But overall, when a nonprofit's lobbying, I don't think to myself, I better not give them my $100. I better not give them my $200 because they lobbied. If it's a mission I support, if it's an organization I support, and if it's composed of a group of individuals in that organization I support... I'll give them my money. Let them lobby. I'm cool with it. One of the things I try to do with myself being in the nonprofit space is really pay attention to the fact that I know a lot less than I realize. There are a lot of really smart, really educated, really well-traveled individuals that are out there in the nonprofit space. So I try to just... Remind myself, you know, try to be humble here at the Nonprofit Insider, that I don't know as much as I think. And even with the things I do know, there's space to learn more. And I re remember about maybe six months ago, I had a friend in the nonprofit space say something to the tune. I don't even know what we're talking about. But basically say something to the tune of, well, you do know that the nonprofit space has one of the highest retention rates of pretty much any sector in America. And I'm like, wait, what? And when I when you think of like something like retention 
or places that have low retention, you probably think of like the food sector, retail, the quote unquote, like low paying jobs that many of us are associated with, or maybe even some of the higher paying jobs, healthcare, places where it's lucrative to bounce around from place to place. Because on the one hand, if you're not getting a lot of money and the work conditions are shitty, you bounce around. And on the other hand, even if you're getting paid a lot, if this other place is willing to pay you more, then you bounce around. But the nonprofit space is an interesting one to me. So I want to talk about that here for a little bit. And this friend is a friend. If you have, I think we all have this in the nonprofit space where whether you're in healthcare as a nurse with a at home, you know, senior citizen department, or you do uh, work in think tank groups. We all have people in a particular space that we kind of lean on a little bit. And I have about, I, have, I probably have a solid three people and they're all different for their own respective reasons. And I was talking to this person and I lean on her heavy and, and she is able to give me some really good insights into, she's a fundraiser And she's able to give me some really good insights into the grind of what she does, the hardships of what she does. And we have a little bit of a coffee thing, you know, every six months or something like that. And we get together and it's always just really high level conversations. She's got a lot going on. So I don't get to her. She's in a different state. I don't get to her as much as she was, I would like. But she was telling me, she said, yeah, you know, the retention rate for the industry is pretty low. And folks, I've done all kinds of stuff in the nonprofit space, and I've done a lot of research on my own and a more formal aspects of learning as much as I can about this industry. That's one area I never even thought about looking into. So I started doing some research. And listen, I'm not doing, I'm not at the Indy, I'm not at Indiana University or you know, UCA, LA, or Harvard. I'm not doing that type of research, but just doing just reading, picking up books, reading a really good book right now I'm excited to talk about. Shout out to Beth Steinhorn. And when doing all of this research, you saw, you know, a a kind of a combination of anywhere from 16% to about 22% retention rate. Now, the retention rate can be dependent, of course, on how you define it? Is it like every year? Is it every three years? You know, how, how are you defining retention? That type of thing. But from a lot of the things that I saw, they tend to see retention rate anywhere from about 12 months to 24 months, depending on the organization you work for, anything like basically after 12 months. And when I, when I compare that to a more, you know, 12%, 13% retention rate with banking, with construction, with just for-profits in general, honestly, I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, well, that's not super high. That's not anything crazy. But you start to think to yourself and theorize, well, why is that the case? Because even if something is is a slightly higher percentage, even if it's just a 3% difference, 4% difference, 5% difference, you still start to think to yourself, well, why is it higher? You know? If you were talking to your coworker and they said, oh, I make, you know, 8% more, you know, depending on how much you're making, that 8% may not be a large number, right? But there's still, you know, a part of you that goes, well, 
why are they making 8% more if we started a week from each other or if we're in the same position, you know? Is it their history? Is it their experience? And so I started doing much of the same, and I started to see a lot of theories related around why the retention rate is so high in the nonprofit space compared to others. Nothing you all wouldn't imagine. A lot of people don't like the pay. The compensation is, of course, listed as a big one. Uh, you may not like the culture. You may not like the, the way it feels. You may not like the work environment you're in. It, it could be all types of things. But I, I think there's one main big reason you see so many people turning over and going to new jobs in a nonprofit space. And I think it's a very clear one. It's one that I've seen on a couple of lists, but I don't think it's one that comes to mind right away. But I think it's a very, very obvious one. There's a lack of growth. Whenever I talk to some of those that are closest to me in the nonprofit space, whether it is with large nonprofits, whether it's medium-sized nonprofits, whether it's with micro-nonprofits, and we're going to talk about micro-nonprofits and the horror story here in a couple of minutes, regardless of the size, I know you're going to see it more in smaller nonprofits, no surprise, but one of the most common things I hear from people in the nonprofit space is, besides the pay, besides the culture, besides the schedule is, I don't have the ability to grow. And not only do I not have the ability to grow in my paycheck, I don't have the ability to grow in my title. I don't have the ability to grow in my responsibilities. I don't have the ability to grow in the amount of uh, personal development that my personal career can happen. And listen, we love the fucking mission of a nonprofit. We all do. I, I, I love working with kids and animals. I love helping in climate change. I love doing research in the ways that all three of those things are affected at once. I love all of that. But there's still a part of you that lives this life selfishly. And when you walk down the street, you're thinking about your own safety, your own hunger, your, your own predicaments. And the same applies when you go into a work environment. And if you don't feel like you have the ability to grow within your particular industry, your particular organization, your particular department, you'll go and say to yourself, well, I need to switch jobs. And I think that is a very big aspect to so much of the reason you see turnover in the nonprofit space, because I think if more people in the nonprofit space had the ability to grow, to learn, to develop, to do trainings, a lot of things that you may not feel in the for-profit space that you can do, and don't get me wrong, a lot of people in the for-profit space say actively, I can't grow, but in the nonprofit space, it's just so funny how you can have 18 different hats on. You can be the fundraiser, the front desk, the janitor, the executive director, the driver. You could be the landscaper. You can be the building management. You could be the, the spare key holder. You, you could do 18, 20 different things in a nonprofit space, and yet you still feel like you are not able to grow. And I think that is a, bar, a, a big part of the reason why you see volunteer retention rates and turnover retention rates being so low and turnover rates being so high because you don't have the ability to go to the next level 
in the nonprofit space unless you switch jobs. Can I tell you about my friends over at the Nonprofit Insider Podcast? That's right. You know I had to do my own promo. And what I want you to do right now is open your Instagram app because I know you are on Instagram and follow me at the Nonprofit Insider. We have a slew of high-level posts that are going to improve your life in the nonprofit space in a relaxed and informative fashion. We're talking facts, stats, opinion pieces, exclusive nonprofit horror stories I'm only going to share on Instagram, and some pretty cool pictures from time to time. Fall, we only post once a day, so you don't have to worry about seeing 800 million stories and posts on your feeds from me. I'm still in the way when I see those things. Again, follow me at the Nonprofit Insider on Instagram right now. All right, let's get back to the show. Time for our favorite segment of the show. Time to read one of your nonprofit horror stories. And this next person, I get an instant glow when thinking about. (laughs) I met this person kind of in in a stranger fashion. I met this person in a movie theater, funny enough. I was out with my ex-wife. This was pre-kids. We had no kids at this point. And we were getting ready to watch a movie of some sort in a movie theater. And a couple walked in to the theater and ended up sitting one or two rows ahead of us. Don't know how I ended up in a conversation with them, but they had mentioned being from Asheville, North Carolina. Many of you know, I went to Asheville. I have a lot of love for Appalachian Mountains. So when I heard that I ended up getting their number and one of them was in the nonprofit space. That was more than eight years ago. And this person is still in the nonprofit space. They're now married to that same person from the movie theater, uh, living back east. They got a growing family, got a kid. I'm sure they're going to have more kids at some point. I'd imagine. You never know. So I reached out to this person and asked for a story. No surprise. They delivered. And they delivered on a really high level. So if you're in your car on your way to work, if you're in your house doing dishes, kind of like how I seem to enjoy many of my podcasts, I find myself I'm like, sure, I got to do these dishes. Let me put the AirPods in. Let me put the, the Sonys in. And uh, let, me do, let me do some dishes and listen to a podcast. But no matter how you're listening to this episode, you are in for a great six-minute treat. So for today's nonprofit horror story, we have... Lacey. Lacey writes. I worked for a very small nonprofit organization for several years. My first half being when I was a bright eyed young professional starting off my career in a new city. And the second half when I returned to lead a project with the same organization as a mid-career counseling professional with a quite a different, more realistic mindset. I really adored this organization from my first impressions of it. In fact, I started off as a volunteer and was quickly offered a program position. I aligned with everything from its mission of fostering global connections between youth as a part of the larger vision of creating a more peaceful world to the dedicated volunteers and educators across 15 countries who were part of this amazing global network. However, as with many small nonprofits with meaningful missions and worthy program offerings, 
The reality of the situation was that reliable, sufficient funding was nearly impossible to sustain. We were a staff of two and a half, plus some steady and some shifting volunteers working hard to hustle between grant applications, community events, and many passionate pleas for support, as well as the actual program operations, marketing, and all that is necessary to run a nonprofit. Our youth participants and their teachers provided compelling testimonies of the vast impact programs had on them as well as the larger community impacts. All the good stuff that kept me and our dedicated funding director up at night. So within this context, my attempt at a relatively short horror story is this swim. After less than a year of my initial work with the organization, I was asked to join our regular monthly board meetings. Our executive director, who was also the founder, also joined these meetings and participated as a non-voting member. This seemed odd to me right away since my understanding was that there should be more separation between a nonprofit board and its staff members. But with small-scale nonprofits, this is rarely the case. It only took me a couple of meetings to realize that despite my best efforts to provide practical program oriented updates during the meetings and leave the rest of our board, our eager machine loving members lacked any true initiative to lead the organization in the direction we needed it, which was to maintain the financial stability of the nonprofit as one of their primary roles. During meetings, there were many awkward transitions and nods towards the executive director or myself to lead all funding-related directives, with very little follow-through from the board, even on their own suggestions. The nature of our small staff and limited capacity was that we actually needed them to play a more active role in securing funding in order for us to reach a sustainable level. Simply put, I was witnessing the extreme challenges of financially sustaining such a small organization that despite its best efforts, could not fit into our capitalistic profit-driven model. Although nonprofits by definition are not intended to pursue profit, there is a tremendous difference between mid to large scale nonprofits that have large operating budgets and the micro to small scale nonprofits that struggle to survive on a regular basis. I share this story not as a criticism of my former workplace. Even upon leaving and while returning as a contractor for a specific project, I deeply supported their mission and programs for youth. More so, I want to bring this conversation forward. In a sense, these small nonprofits operate like startups, and many have now shifted into a social enterprise model out of necessity, realizing that our economic model often fails to work for small-scale nonprofits. Are these programs less viable just because they don't warrant consistent corporate sponsorships or ongoing government grants? I don't think so. But the level of insecurity for small-scale program members and well-intended board members is just not sustainable in our current ecosystem. Ultimately, this organization merged under our larger organization with national and government ties, gaining financial security, but ironically losing part of its program quality and mission focus. 
It had managed to survive for 15 years as an independent small nonprofit with vast community impact, but with much personal compromise on behalf of its founder and staff. Um, thank you, Lacey. <laughs> that is a... Listen, I've been getting a lot of nonprofit horror stories. I really love the depth to which Lacey went into that story because I felt that. Um, and I know, of course, this person's backstory a little bit more than you all as the listeners, but I felt that backstory. And that, actually, I learned some really good insights into their backstory that I didn't really, I didn't really know. And it really showcased, she really showcases the feeling when you're, I mean, you're like, mm, mm, mm. I mean, you're really in it with a nonprofit. Like you're, you're doing all the things, you know, at that point. And you, you, you just felt it. You just struggle. And within the industry you are in, the longer you are a part of that industry, the more, you understand the structure and inner workings of said industry, insurance, construction, hospitality, retail, warehouse. I recently went to Flagstaff for a weekend getaway with the girlfriend. We saw Young the Giant and Milky Chance. I didn't know their music super well, but they were they put on a really good show. So we went out to Flagstaff, got away for a little bit, cooler weather. And it was a small setup compared to the likes of a Taylor Swift uh, a Beyonce, Harry Styles, if he had a, one of these big concerts, you know, much bigger scale. But you can still tell, even in this Pepsi amphitheater, uh, shout out to Pepsi, they need to be a sponsor. <laughs> even in this small amphitheater, it's still a big operation setting everything up. And I can imagine that the audio equipment team understands the industry better today than when they started five years ago. 10 years ago, however many years ago they started, they understand the industry better than they did in the past, like with anything. One of the reasons I really connected with Lacey so early on after meeting them in that movie theater was because I picked up very quickly how smart this person was. They are the type of nonprofit leader you really want on your side because they just have an amazing way of understanding the structure of a nonprofit. And when you're working with a micro or small nonprofit, as they said, I never heard micro nonprofit. Is that, a, is that a term? I have to look it up. I've heard, you know, small nonprofits, medium and large, but micro, I'm like, like a microbrewery. Something interesting. But you, you could just tell, you can hear in the way they shape the story, they understand the structure of just being in this industry. When they, like when they said, and I quote, our eager, mission-loving members lacked any true initiative to lead the organization in the direction we needed it, which was to maintain the financial stability of the nonprofit as one of their primary goals. We all know it's important to, to you know, raise money and, you know, be in certain roles, but they, they really break it down. This was important as one of their primary roles. They really get it. Another quote that I really love from Lacey, and I quote, I was witnessing the extreme challenges of financially sustaining such a small organization that, despite its best efforts, could not fit into our capitalistic profit-driven model. Uh, any fundraisers on the episode today? Listening? 
Yeah, you, you, you get this. It, it doesn't matter if you've been to a big nonprofit or small nonprofit. We know in the capitalist society how hard it can be to part ways uh, with money. This shit is hard. <laughs> and, and Lacey, you really connected with some of the realities affecting nonprofits because this shit is hard. I'm sure the organization's founder, I'm sure that board, I'm sure all the volunteers involved. Were, I bet they, I bet everyone was operating at a high level or a, a level as high as they could, you know, potentially take it. And still, you got to get lucky. And still, you got to catch a fucking break because it can so it can be so hard. And, and look, I want to end on this. Listen, a lot of you all know this, but. There are 1.5 million nonprofits or there were 1.5 million nonprofits registered with the Internal Revenue Services in 2022. You know how many of those one and a half million nonprofits bore in over $250 million in private donations? Just, just private donations. We're not talking about uh, revenue, like, you know, like Goodwill or a YMCA, they get revenue because they sell memberships or they sell clothes. We're not talking about just revenue. We're talking about just pure private donations, which is a large percentage of nonprofits across the nation that rely on private donations alone versus revenue. You want to know how many of those 1.5 million nonprofits had over $250 million in private donations? 96. 96 folks that's not even that's not even triple that's not even 196 at least according to Forbes you know I got a source that I put all in the source you want to know how many of those one and a half million nonprofits brought in over a billion dollars in private donations in 2022 a billion dollars 13 this Shit is hard. Great story from you, Lacey. Thank you so much. An amazing story. If you have a nonprofit horror story you want to submit, feel free to reach out to me, Swim Kareem. You know, I'm your host. I got it in the show notes, s.kareem at gmail.com. You know, one day we're going to have our own at nonprofit insider. But for now, we're using the Gmail. Reach out to me. We'd love to get you uh, get your story here on the show. We got some great stories. All right, let's wrap it up there. Let's end it. We'll see you on the next episode in two weeks. Take care, everyone.